Welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka. And I'm your co-host, Aaron. Bad Axe is brought to you by the Podmoth Media Network. Check out Podmoth for more great podcasts. As always, you can support the show and get months worth of bingeable content over at patreon.com backslash badaxepod. There is a link in our show notes. Memberships start at just $1 and there's so many episodes over there. It's just bursting at the seams. So definitely check it out. You can also support the show for free by leaving us a positive review and telling a friend about us. Now, on to today's case. Today, we are going to Cleveland, Ohio from 2002 through 2017, because we are going to be talking about several cases and a potential serial killer today. Cleveland, as most notable for having the Drew Carey show there, right? <laughs> right? From yes, like yeah. from like a million years ago, from olden yeah, times. That's right. From ye olden times. <laughs> I don't remember a lot about the Drew Carey show because I haven't seen most of it, but I remember parts of it probably wouldn't stand up that well. Should we try to watch it again? <laughs> but the song gets stuck in your head, but it is about Cleveland sucking, and then I felt bad because I think Cleveland has some cool stuff to offer. Yeah, absolutely. Cleveland sounds great. Not this particular area, apparently, <laughs> but some parts of Cleveland seem really cool. Absolutely. And I would go there. It'd be cool to visit. Yeah. It would be cool to visit. Now, specifically, we are going to a stretch of East 93rd Street between Buckeye Road and Harvard Avenue on Cleveland's east side, which covers about a one-mile-ish area. And it's where some people believe a serial killer stalked the streets. I know. I was scared. It does sound intimidating. Yes, and I'm being completely serious. I was legitimately spooked. The majority of the houses in this area are vacant, or at least they were vacant during the period of time we're talking about, which again was 2012 through 2017. So that made it a good spot for criminals to lurk. And there were also a lot of unhoused people living in the area because they were vacant lots. And a lot of the vacant houses were just open. So you could just easily crawl into them and just stay there if you wanted to. Right, yeah. Today, I'm going to be telling you about six individual murders that happened in this area during this time period, one of which is solved. However, most of these victims have yet to receive justice, and that's partially why I'm telling you their stories today. And also, so we can hypothesize on whether or not we think there is a serial killer, because this is literally still being debated uh, by both cops and community members and essentially everyone familiar with this case. Our story starts on December 17th, 2012. At around 11.23 a.m., police received a call from a person residing in the 9400 block of Manor Avenue in Cleveland. The caller was a concerned neighbor who just made a horrific discovery. According to this neighbor, they hadn't seen their upstairs neighbor, 37-year-old Jamila Hassan, for days. They decided to check on her and noticed that her duplex's door was ajar. Now, Jamila was a mother, but she wasn't living her best life at this moment in time. 
However, her neighbors did like her and she was a nice person. I just need to mention that because I couldn't find a lot of information about her and it just bothers me not to say anything about these people. The neighbor went inside the duplex to check on Jamila and unfortunately they were right to be concerned because in the duplex they found her stabbed to death in the bedroom. Authorities rushed to the scene but it was too late. According to the medical examiner, Jamila had 11 to 15 stab wounds in her neck area. And, of course, she did die from these wounds. Paramedics were unable to help her, so they declared her dead at the scene. But the question is, who attacked Jamila? Now, investigators immediately came up short on evidence. There's not a lot of clues here at the scene. And, according to some reports, Jamila may not have been a renter at this duplex, in some reports, it's listed as one of the vacant houses, but she was also stated as living there. So it's unclear if this is a place where she is paying rent or not. But regardless, she considered it to be her home and it just wasn't providing the clues that investigators need. Now, unfortunately, lack of evidence isn't the only thing that was holding back this investigation because Hassan's family says that they've gone through multiple investigators at this point. According to WKYC News, the first detective on this case actually just resigned from the whole police force while investigating the murder. Wow. And this was like shortly after it happened. So not like a long time passes. I mean, this was 2012. So, I mean, this already has only been nine years. So it's not like a super long time has gone by. Agreed, yeah. So a second detective gets assigned to the case, but then they just pretty much immediately transfer out of this department. Dude, what the hell? Yeah, so super suspicious. They got a new detective, but guess what? Did he quit? He quit too. He resigned. (laughs) He also resigned. And then finally, there was a new person who the family said did not seem to be doing their brightest work either. Now, to this day, Crime Stoppers is actually still offering a $2,500 reward for information leading to the arrest and indictment of Jamila's killer. And that is officially what we know about Jamila's case, which is not a lot. We know that she was in this duplex. She was stabbed to death. It was a lot of stab wounds. And it was in this 93rd Street area. Now, this is our first case that establishes a pattern. So kind of hold on to Jamila. In March 2013, our case picks back up. So this is only a few months later because if you recall, Jamila was killed in December 2012. In March 2013, two more women disappeared in the same neighborhood on almost the same day. The first of those two women to disappear was 45-year-old Christine Malone. Now, Christine Malone was the mother of eight children, and she was also a grandmother. She had had kind of a rough life because she had struggled with drug addiction, and as a result of her drug dependency, she had also done sex work in order to support herself and to, I believe, support her children at various points. Although, based on reports, I do think that her children may not have grown up with her necessarily because some of them called her by her first name instead of calling her mom. But... By 2013, she had actually turned her life around, and she had moved in with her daughter, Angelique, and was creating a healthier life for herself, and so things were really looking up for her. Now, she was last seen walking down East 93rd Street on March 18th, 2013, and that night, she had gone out for an evening walk, although some people say that the last time she was seen was when she was getting into a maroon car. 
So there's kind of a differing view on when she was last seen, whether it was this walk or the car, but we are definitely going to come back to this maroon car later to talk about it as a clue. So that might have been the last time that she was seen. But for sure, it was March 18th. Now, her family describes Christine as a social butterfly, and photos of her show that she had a wide, bright smile. And because of this, they say that she would never do anything that would upset people or that would draw, like, negative attention toward herself. Christine actually remained missing until March 28th. And unfortunately, that day, a little girl walking home from school found her body at around 4 p.m. Oh, man, that's gruesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she just saw this horrific sight of Christine laying in some leaves in a vacant field, and someone called 911 on her behalf. Bloody FM presents Hometown Ghost Stories, a paranormal podcast that investigates a new town every week, bringing you all the hauntings, from haunted houses to castles, bridges to asylums, wandering spirits to demons. Over 100 episodes covering different towns all over the world. Tune in to Hometown Ghost Stories live on YouTube every Tuesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern or on any podcast platform and find out if your hometown is haunted. Yeah, that has to suck if you're a small child and you have to find a find a body. You know, mm-hmm. like that's really got to be traumatizing. Yes. Oh my gosh. And also just upsetting that this little girl walks home from school in an area where there are just dead bodies laying there. That too, yes. <laughs> and again, this is like a serial killer's killing field, essentially. Right, yeah. Now, the police arrived at the scene to see who the victim was. We know that it's Christine because I'm telling you that now. But this was actually caught on camera for the show The First 48. So there's an episode about this case. And when they found Christine's body. So you can actually see, like, the body, but they, like, blur out her face, which is kind of gross, actually. I did not realize they had actual crime scene photos until today. I've watched that show before. I've actually watched an episode about one of the other cases, like, before this ever happened. I she's This is the case that I wanted to do today, and then I found out there was all these other cases. Anyway, you can see that episode, and they have, like, the detective show up, and her family shows up, and they're all crying, and it's so sad. Now, this field is located in the 9300 block of Bessemer Avenue near the intersection with East 93rd Street, and it was a popular sleeping spot for unhoused individuals who were living in the area at this time. Now, Detectives Bob Ford and Tom Aramelli are initially assigned to this case, and they are the ones you will see in the first 48. I was not a huge fan of these detectives, and we're going to talk about why in a minute. When she was found, police noted a brick nearby that appeared to be used in her beating. And in this episode, the detective actually says, quote, that whack mark on her face, it goes with the brick, unquote. Is that how you evaluate a body? Like, if you just were watching it, you understand it's very cavalier. And I just thought it was kind of offensive to, to me. It feels like an unsolved mysteries cop thing to say. Kind of, but also just the fact that the family might watch this. And I feel like if you are thinking about how a family would react to you hearing that, it's not kind. It's not a kind way to state it. It was, like, very cavalier. Like, not how you would talk about a person, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's no empathy in that person. Yeah. Yeah. And it gets, it got ickier for me because I have to talk about this. The detective named Bob Ford goes and checks Christine's background and finds out that she has previous charges for sex work and for her... dependence on drugs and then he actually says quote so that was her lifestyle 
she probably ran across in a week, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, unquote. Good Lord. And I thought that was so dismissive of a way to talk about her. And I feel like that's why these cases aren't solved, really, is because they're making these judgments about who these women are. And that's not helpful. It doesn't matter if she was out there doing sex work. She is a person and that's work. It's her job. You should be protecting her and not allowing people to murder her. It doesn't matter if she has a drug addiction. She doesn't, she shouldn't be able to get murdered and left in a field and you do nothing about it. That's why people are killing people and living them in these houses because you aren't taking it seriously because you were like, oh, her lifestyle opened her up to these people. Maybe that's partially true. Obviously, if you're living a high-risk lifestyle, it can open you up to more chances for a crime. But that doesn't mean that you deserve this to happen to you or that you don't deserve people to treat your crime just as seriously as someone else's. Yeah, for real. No, totally. Anyway, I thought that was gross. Yes. Her daughter, Angelique, says that by the point all this happened, she wasn't in this, like quote-unquote lifestyle really anymore and that she didn't stay out at all hours she didn't disappear ever and she was very accountable and would tell Angelique where she was going and when she was going to be back and if she was running late for some reason she would call her daughter so it was very out of character for her to have disappeared in the first place and that's why the family knew that something was wrong at the crime scene the police realized right away that Christine had been beaten to some degree including with this brick but that wasn't actually her cause of death the medical examiner determined that her official cause of death was blunt force trauma, asphyxia, and hypothermia. And there was a possibility that if she had gotten medical help early enough, they might have been able to save her possibly is what they said in this particular episode. But unfortunately, she didn't get help. And then with all of her wounds, because she was brutally beaten, she eventually passed away. Yeah. It's important to note for future reference that Christine was not sexually assaulted based on the ME report. And that's important for later because it goes to MO for this potential serial killer, whether or not this person is actually existing. Right. Is it a serial killer or is it not is the question we're going to be asking later. And that's what everyone is asking about these cases. And since she wasn't sexually assaulted, that does differ from some of the other victims. Now, at the time of Christine's murder, and also there's another murder that's happening consecutively at the same time that we're about to talk about, and that victim's name is Jasmine Trotter, and I'm only mentioning her to let you know that these murders happened at the same time, and there were actually construction crews from out of town in this area at the same time as these two murders. These construction crews were actually refurbishing the vacant houses in the neighborhood as part of a project to revitalize the area. A few of these workers are actually interviewed in that episode of the first 48 and they were working about a hundred yards away from where Christine Malone's body was found. And they said that they did not notice that there was a body laying in the field right next to their work site. That sounds unlikely, right? I mean, mm -hmm. yes. So obviously I'm not trying to accuse people of anything, but I felt very suspicious listening to their interview because how do you not notice? Like it wasn't covered up. In case you were wondering, you have not seen anything about this case. It was literally just laying there. Like, there were leaves around it, but it was on top of the leaves. So, I mean, it is very viewable. Right. It's not really hidden or obscured yeah. at all. It's just, like, out there. It's just out there. And so, I'm not saying it's impossible, but it sounds very suspicious. And it just made me really suspicious of these workers. Like, were they out there for all these murders? Because 
as you have probably figured out, they do mysteriously stop at some point. What did they stop for? Is it possible they stopped when these workers left? Again, I'm not trying to accuse anyone. I'm just saying that it did come off as strange to me. It just feels like that's one of the theories that we could all talk about, uh, about, about what happened with these murders. Just saying. I just find it very suspicious. Christine's brother-in-law also spoke to police about this. And he allegedly is the last person in her family to see her alive. And he's not really presented as being very suspicious. Although I do kind of think it's suspicious that he saw her last. He says that she was with a light-skinned male in his 40s that day and that the potential suspect was allegedly driving a maroon Hyundai with a white inside. Now, later, police were actually able to locate a red Honda that they thought belonged to their suspect. It was maroon red. And they found a man that went with it who had a rap sheet for drugs. And so they thought maybe this is the guy. At that point, they collected the suspect's DNA to compare to samples at the crime scene, but the tests were inconclusive. So this led nowhere, which makes sense that the tests were inconclusive because they don't have like really obvious DNA from like a sexual assault. So they're going with other DNA. So they were unable to match him. But there's one more clue that comes right after that. During the investigation, Christine's daughter, Angelique, actually found a suspicious cell phone with a number that she didn't recognize on it. This also is tracked down by police, but it doesn't really come to anything. Now, Christine's family and friends all say that she would never do anything that would get her killed. And since there are no suspects, we may never know what really happened to her. Now, we are going to back up a couple of days and talk about the other murder that happened around the exact same time that Christine was abducted and murdered. 20-year-old mother, Jasmine Trotter, vanished on Friday, March 22, 2013. That morning, she left her boyfriend's house at 5 o'clock a.m. to walk to work. Her boyfriend told police that he sometimes walked with Jasmine, but she didn't wake him up that morning because she was being conscientious. Unfortunately, that meant that she was walking alone. Now, every weekday, she walked two miles to her job at a temp agency, and then at the temp agency, she would get in a van that would drive her to her current assignment. Initially, police believed that someone might have followed her as she walked from home to work. They even suspected she may have been targeted, like someone might have been intentionally waiting for Jasmine specifically, and then just followed her until she was in an area where she was kind of out of sight in that vacant house area, and they could just grab her and kind of drag her into the dark. However, when they found surveillance footage from businesses in the area, they actually were able to see her walking right before she walked past the area where she was murdered. And they could clearly see that there was nobody following her. There was nobody walking and there were no cars that drove by. So whoever killed her had to like already be in that area of the vacant houses just kind of lurking. Interesting. Yeah. And they didn't have any video from like the other side. So they could have like walked from the other side too. But they don't know if anyone came from that way because they didn't have a camera angle from that direction. Now Jasmine's boyfriend reported her missing on March 23rd, 2013. And he and her family scoured the streets looking for her, determined to bring her home. They even walked the route that Jasmine always took to work to see if they could find anything. This search brought them to a home located on East 93rd Street in Cannon at around 1 p.m. on Sunday, March 24th. Outside the home, family members spotted a purse and makeup bag that matched ones belonging to Jasmine. 
And underneath the porch, which was kind of in like a basement area, because this house was really broken down. So like it was kind of both. Uh, there was not really like a solid floor. They found Jasmine's partially clothed body and she had been brutally beaten. Jasmine's mother, Monique Williams, actually made the 911 call reporting her daughter's murder. And it was incredibly distressing because she was obviously very sad. Yeah, that sounds heartbreaking. Now, detectives Ignatius, who goes by Nate, Soa, and detective Raymond Diaz, who goes by Ray, responded to the scene. Now, again, there is also a separate The First 48 about this murder. And I'd actually seen this case a long time ago. And I was researching cases and came across Jasmine's and I recognized it. And so I thought, oh, I'll do Jasmine Trotter's case because I haven't really heard any other podcasts doing it. Then I thought I should rewatch the show. And then I accidentally found that we had the serial killer situation. And so obviously our case got bigger. But anyway, you can see these two detectives on that show. The medical examiner in Jasmine's case concluded that her killer had bludgeoned her in the head and strangled her. And unfortunately, Jasmine was also sexually assaulted. During her autopsy, investigators recovered a DNA sample. Now, weirdly, police also obtained Jasmine's phone records, which showed her phone was on after her murder and traveled around. Records show the phone went to her job site three times after her murder, which is extremely suspicious. They actually believed initially that whoever murdered her must have been a co-worker and that they must have worked the first and second shifts the day of the crime and then the, sh- the morning shift the day after, which was Saturday. So they thought that based on her phone records. They actually got all the employment records for where she worked and were unable to find anyone who worked that shift. But that didn't stop them from getting a break in the case. Because in April 2013, police announced that they'd actually identified a suspect and arrested him. The suspect they identified was a man named Jerome Ogletree who was 42 years old and had a long criminal record. In the past, he pleaded guilty to charges for crimes like robbery in 1993, car theft, cocaine possession in 1990 and 1991, and drug trafficking in 1999, 2002, and 2006. Now, it's important to note that police did say that none of these crimes involved any violence, so that really wasn't part of his criminal vibe right? to, to commit violence. Now, according to police, the DNA found on Jasmine's body matched Ogletree. And so they arrested Ogletree when they brought him in for questioning. Like literally when they sat him down to do the Miranda rights, they straight up told him before he started talking, you're under arrest. Instead of like questioning him and then deciding if they wanted to arrest him. I think they thought they had a solid case because of the DNA. Makes sense, yeah. Now authorities charged Ogletree with aggravated murder and a judge set his bail at $1 million and it appeared that Jasmine would get justice after all. But during that interrogation, when they arrested him, Ogletree actually told the police that he expected his DNA to be on her body. This is before they told him what evidence that they had, because he said, I guess this is about Jazz. And the police were like, yeah, do you know why you're here? And he said, my DNA. And they were like, oh, okay. So this was, we weren't expecting that. Like, yeah. explain. And he tells them that they actually had consensual sex and didn't use protection. And he claims this occurred two days before her murder. Now, if you're like me and you're super suspicious, you're probably thinking, that sounds like bullshit. Like, my initial thought was, I don't believe you because she's 20. She's, you know, doing her mom thing. She's trying to get her life all awesome. She's got this boyfriend who seems to be a nice guy. 
And then you're 42 and you have this record. Like, it doesn't make sense why she's, like, cheating on her boyfriend with you. Yeah. So that is what I was thinking, just being real. And I feel like most of our listeners who don't know the full story are probably thinking the same thing as well. Now, at the same interview, he also offers an alibi. And he tells them that he was giving another coworker a ride on the morning of the murder and that he was across town picking this coworker up and taking her to work, which would make it impossible for him to have killed Jasmine. So the police are like, hmm, this actually sounds like a legitimate version of events. Not so much necessarily because we automatically believe him, but he's literally offering an alibi that we can prove or disprove because not only do they have this other woman as a witness, but they also have his cell phone records that they can use to ping where he was. Yep. So they're thinking like, okay, we're going to check this out. Now, turns out Jasmine's text messages actually did confirm that she did have a relationship with Ogletree. Oh, wow. So he was not lying. Like, he really did have consensual sex with her based on her text messages back and forth with him. Damn. Yeah, which was, I thought, was very shocking. Because I thought, how was he not in jail? And then I thought, oh, my God, he's telling the truth. We should not be so judgy. This is a lesson for me and all the other suspicious people. Sometimes, apparently, the guy is not lying about having consensual sex with these people. (laughs) There you go. And they were also able to verify his alibi because he did have that witness, but also his cell phone records clearly showed him in that area of town, like across town, too far away for him to have been murdering Jasmine. And so, as a result of this, authorities dropped the charges against Ogletree in May 2013, and he has officially been cleared as a suspect. You know, as you may notice, that now leaves Jasmine's murder unsolved and we have no justice. That's right. Um, So we're going to keep going into our next crime because there is actually another crime that happened around the same time as Jasmine and Christine's attacks. And this one did not get a lot of headlines because the victim actually survived. But we're going to talk about it. On Saturday, March 30th, 2013... 20-year-old R, um, I do know her name, but I decided not to use it because I noticed in some reports she had asked to be remained anonymous. So I don't want to tell you her name in case she's still doing that. So 20-year-old R was attacked on the same stretch of roadway. And her attack occurred near East 116th Street and Harvey in the neighborhood. She was nearly sexually assaulted in this attack. But fortunately, a car just so happened to drive by at the same time and noticed what was happening. And the three passengers heard her and stopped and actually intervened to save her. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, and so she was able to get away after that. And then the the Good Samaritans did leave the scene, but thankfully R was safe. Now, she gave police a description of her attacker and said that he was 6'2", a black male, and his mid-40s. At the time of the attack, she said he was wearing dark clothing and dark gloves. Now, they only had that description to go on, and unfortunately, they didn't have any testimony from these witnesses. So, police and local pastors banded together to ask the Good Samaritans to come forward and help R by giving more descriptions. But, based on reports, it doesn't appear that that happened. Now, I do want to know at this point, you'll notice the entrance of local pastors. At some point during all these murders, pastors became kind of like an intermissary between like the police and the community and were trying to help to stop all this. And so they kind of made some appearances and I just thought I would note that because they kind of did a lot of work to try to help the community. 
Hey everyone, my name is Eddie, producer, legend, and host of my Crunchy podcast over on the Podmoth Media Network. If you're looking for something chaotic, somewhat messy, and very incomprehensible, then go stream my Crunchy podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. So stop searching and start listening to all your new faves from the Podmoth Media Network team now. After Jasmine and Christine's murders, the community really started trying to fight back. Some community members made flyers about the crimes, alleging a rapist and murderer was stalking their streets, attacking women, and they even tried to have, like, meetings and talks and stuff to figure out what they could do to help and to try to get this killer off the streets. Because at this point, the vast majority of residents are starting to think they have a serial killer because we have three murders and we have this attack on our all the same area. It's incredibly suspicious. And people are getting really scared. Of course, yeah. Unfortunately, though, all these efforts they're making were not enough to stop these murders. Because the next woman went missing just a month and a half later in May 2013. The family of 21-year-old Ashley Lezieski reported her missing on May 17th, 2013. Then, on May 28th, someone found her body in a vacant lot in the 3500 block of East 93rd Street. The medical examiner determined that Ashley's cause of death was multiple sharp force injuries to her head and neck. Her killer also apparently cut off her hand. Ooh. Which is wrong. Yes. Which is not okay, everyone. Now, like Jasmine, Ashley was sexually assaulted. Unfortunately, that is literally the only information that I could find about Ashley's murder. Wow, that's good. I know. Now, her family has been very active in trying to get her case solved and has joined in all the marches and all of the community events that have taken place. And so they are definitely still looking for answers as to what happened to Ashley. And most community members are pretty sure that the same person is responsible for all the cases that we have just discussed. Now, the street went quiet for almost three whole years, which is pretty impressive. I think, and a lot of other people think, that that might be a suggestion that whoever the killer is was off the streets in some capacity at that point, and that these first four victims all are like the same killer, but not necessarily, well, for sure not one of the two we're going to talk about next. The next crime was truly bizarre. So, buckle in. It started on Sunday, April 25th, 2016. That day, Dion Hayes arrived home and found his house in disarray. Later, police confirmed that the home's condition confirmed foul play. Alarmingly, his fiancée, 26-year-old Jessica Coleman, was missing. Jessica's car and purse were both at the home, but her cell phone wasn't. Jessica's family had last seen her that night at around 9.30 p.m., when she left a family barbecue. Dion believed that Jessica had been kidnapped during a break-in, and shortly after he arrived home, he actually received a phone call from someone claiming to be the kidnapper. He says the kidnappers demanded $5,000 for her safe return. Immediately, Dion called Jessica's parents to tell them what he found. He also called police at around 12.30 a.m. on April 26th to report Jessica missing. Keep in mind that only three hours passed between when Jessica's family last saw her and when her fiancé reported her missing. So, honestly, it sounds like too short of a period of time for him to have tried to do anything to her, if we're being honest. Like, it's not impossible, but 
he was inviting people into the house, like the police, like right away. That seems unlikely, yeah. Yeah, like like the time it would take for her to get home and then for them to have had some kind of altercation that would result in her dying and then inviting the police in the house. Like it doesn't sound like he could possibly have done something to her. We'll never know for sure, obviously, but it seems legit that the family is just an innocent victim, even though this case is bizarre. Absolutely, yeah. Now, later that same day, which was Monday, April 26th, rail workers discovered Jessica's body at around 3 p.m. She was laying beside the railroad tracks located at East 83rd Street and Rawlings Avenue, and this is very close to that East 93rd Street area. The medical examiner determined her cause of death to be a gunshot wound. There are several big differences between Jessica Coleman's case and the other victims' cases, which suggests that it's probably not the same killer. One is that she was kidnapped from a suburban home in Warrensville Heights, which is outside of Cleveland, and then taken to this area near East 93rd Street. And also, she was killed with a gunshot wound, whereas all the other victims were attacked in, like, a physical assault. There were knives used in in some of the crimes and two of the crimes, but... Overall, it was like a brutal beating type assault, and this is just a simple gunshot wound. Yeah. Plus, we have that ransom call, which police say did happen in the reports that they released about the crime. Now, because of these differences, she is often left off the list of official East 93rd Street victims. However, her murder is also unsolved, even to this day, and family members have complained that police have at times treated them like suspects, as they are grieving Jessica's loss. And we're just kind of honestly not very nice to the family. Yeah, totally. They are still hoping to get clues about Jessica's murder. So I decided to include it for that reason. And also because it did happen in the same area. It does also add to the lore of the East 93rd Street neighborhood. Yes, yeah, it does. The last East 93rd Street victim disappeared in January 2017. On January 26, 2017, 14-year-old Aliana DeFreeze disappeared on her way to school. It was a cold, snowy day with a thick blanket of snow coating the ground. Surveillance footage actually showed a man stalking Aliana. She had ridden a public city bus to school that day, and there was video footage of her on the bus. Now, the perpetrator was not on the bus, but when she got off the bus to switch buses, because she had to do a a bus switch, when she got off the bus, a man appeared, and he approached her. And that is the person who stole her. So you actually have camera footage of her, like, leaning away from him and then him attacking her. Wow. Yeah. Like, he takes her, like, off another street. At that point, she disappeared. And for a while, nobody knew what happened to her. But sadly, searchers found Aliana's body three days later inside a vacant home in the 9400 block of Fuller Avenue, which is off East 93rd. The medical examiner determined that Aliana died from beating, stabbing, and strangulation. And during the attack, the perpetrator had also sexually assaulted her. And her crime was extremely brutal, and we're going to talk about some minor details later, but it was pretty bad. Aliana's father, Damon DeFries, told ABC News 5 after his daughter's murder, quote, Cleveland does have a problem with serial killers. Honestly, I believe that we do. This looks like a hunting ground. There are multiple predators, I believe, unquote. Now, it's important to note that there actually were a couple of other serial killers that had just finished operating in Cleveland around that area as well. One of them is Anthony Sowell, who killed a lot of women. The other one is Michael Madison, who has killed at least three victims. And so this was sort of like a contemporary set of serial killers that was also operating in that area. So, you know, it has people thinking that there's just a problem. 
Following Aliana's murder, the community started demanding changes, especially with her being 14 years old and this sweet, innocent girl. Everyone really, that was like the line and people lost it. And so they started suggesting we need more surveillance cameras around the area. We need to tear down these abandoned houses, have more collaboration between the public and the police. Now about this police thing, it's kind of weird because the police station that is closest to this area is actually only a couple of blocks down the road on East 93rd Street from, like, the murder area. Oh, wow. That's Yeah, surprising. like, there's literally a police station, and it's pretty big. So it's like, okay, I mean, you want to have, you definitely need more police, but, like, they're also right there, and they're not seeing it. And it's to the point that Cleveland Councilman Zach Reed actually suggested to the news that the killer might have even chosen this area to operate because it's a way to mess with the police. Like, yeah. it's simultaneously easy to do things in vacant houses and also it fucks with them because they're right there. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. In an interview with WKYC, Reed actually said, quote, almost like he's teasing them. Hey, I'm doing this, and I'm doing this right underneath your nose, and you come catch me, and you come find me, and until you do, I'm going to continue this, unquote. Which is, like, legitimate. That's what he seems to be doing. Exactly, yeah. For their part, the Cleveland Police Department has some excuses. And for one, they say they're undermanned. And they also don't have enough resources to just investigate murders as thoroughly as they would like. And this is a complaint that they lodge. Also, though, you might notice if you watch any of the episodes on, um, on the first 48 of these crimes, because Aliana is also on there. If you watch any of these, you will notice that a lot of these police officers, like overwhelmingly, are white officers. And this is a majority black area. And all but one of these victims that we've talked about today are black. Only Ashley Lezieski is white. And so that does kind of make you wonder if that's a possibility that maybe there's just not enough diversity on the police force and they're not connecting with this community as well. That's a thing that happens. And it is disturbing to see white officers being dismissive about black women when this city, based on all of these serial killers, all the ones we've talked about, Anthony Sowell and Michael Madsen, they both targeted black women as well. And so at this point in time, there were a lot of black women dying in this area and then not getting any kind of justice, like a lot of unsolved murders too. And with regard to the councilman, Zach Reed, he actually came out and said that the part of the reason why he brought up the serial killer thing here is that he had tried to re report the body smell from the area around Anthony Sowell's house and police had not taken that report seriously and took a while to start investigating him as a potential criminal. And so he's like, I need to put this out here because change needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely it does. Um, so the police did swear that they were working very hard, all right? Shortly after Aliana's murder, community members banded together to demand justice, led by kidnapping survivor Laura Cowan. And the group actually held a rally outside the police station to ask for answers since they felt like they weren't getting any from these officers. Now, the family members, community members, and people outside of Cleveland all believe there's not enough being done to find out what happened to the East 93rd Street victims or just all of the other black women that are being killed around Cleveland. You're probably wondering, how did someone commit six murders without coming under suspicion? That's Good what question. we're all wondering. Yep. Now, after this rally in 2017, police commander Brandon Cutts um, had some answers, kind of. He told Cleveland 19 News that it's possible there's a serial killer operating along East 93rd Street, but he said there was actually not enough evidence supporting the serial killer theory. Essentially, though, the police have just gone back and forth saying they can't rule it in or out. So maybe there is, maybe there's not, who knows. 
It is important to note that there are over 100 sexual predators living in the area. So I guess you could argue that there's more killers as well. Like maybe they're all doing it. We don't know. He did say that police were working around the clock to solve these cases. And that round the clock work actually did pay off for one victim. Less than a week after her murder, 14-year-old Aliana's case broke wide open and police identified a suspect. His name was Christopher Whitaker. Whitaker previously served time for sexual battery and assault, and he was actually registered as a sex offender at the time that he murdered Aliana. In that prior case, he tricked a woman into letting him into her apartment. He then attacked the woman with scissors. He had said he needed to use the bathroom. So he goes into the bathroom and then he gets out the scissors. Oh, shit. He strangled her until she was unconscious and then sexually assaulted her while she was unconscious. And after the assault, he stabbed the woman in the neck to kill her. Jesus Christ. Fortunately, she survived. I would like to point out that our first victim, uh, Jamila Hassan, was stabbed in the neck specifically. So do with that information what you will. Uh, We're going to find out some information about Whitaker in a minute that will make you be sad. So be prepared for that, too. But I'm just pointing out the fact that that's a similarity. We all see that, right? I mean, I see that. Also, to be fair, Ashley Lazieski also, I believe, was stabbed. Like, she died from sharp force injuries, but that's like a stabby injury. Like, it's a pointy injury. Yep. And to, like, her head and neck area. So, I mean, just saying. For this crime, where he did this to this woman, he sexually assaulted her and tried to kill her, Guess how long he went to prison? Not that long. Not that long. It was just four years, which is crazy. <laughs> that's not That's long crazy. Long. He stabbed her in the neck, y'all. I mean, that's obviously he tried to kill her. That is really bad. A rape and attempted murder four years? That's nuts. Yes, it is. I don't understand why they have people in jail for drug charges for infinity, and then they're letting actual violent criminals out. Yep. Just let out the drug people. It's fine. They're fine. You can let them go. It's ridiculous. Yeah, keep the violent offenders. Yeah, uh, make, yeah. Make sure they're I mean, actually obviously, serving their time. Yeah. Obviously, like, there's parole for a reason. But this should have had more time. Yep. I refuse to back down from this. Plus, the fact that he then murdered Aliana, it just goes to show that he should have been in jail longer. In 2019, Whitaker went on trial for Aliana's murder. And the evidence was overwhelming with DNA and shoe prints tying him to the scene. Additionally, police had surveillance footage showing him attack Aliana. And also, he did confess. I do think that they may have only taken him to trial to try to get the death penalty just because he did confess and his lawyers have gone on record saying that he was willing to plead guilty. And we have seen in other cases that sometimes prosecutors go to trial just because they are so upset that they want to get the death penalty. At trial, prosecutors revealed that Whitaker actually used a drill, screwdriver, and a nut driver to torture Aliana during the attack. What the fuck? Yeah, what the fuck indeed. What in the actual fuck? So that is probably why they decided to go to trial. Yeah. I I mean, I can understand that. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It's just, why? Why would you do this? It's all bad. And also, during his confession, he tried to say he wasn't a monster. He was just an addict. And... All of the world's tiniest violins broke themselves because they just couldn't, they couldn't go on anymore. Yeah. It's just, no, no. Anyway, we're, I'm not the only one that says no, because at the end of his six day trial, the jury convicted Whitaker of aggravated murder, rape, felonious assault, aggravated burglary, obstruction of justice, and gross abuse of a corpse. They sentenced him to death and Whitaker is currently sitting on death row. 
However, in October 2021, Whitaker's attorneys did request his sentence be commuted to life because they say that he should get life instead of death because he tried to plead guilty and take responsibility. The decision on this appeal is still pending. Based on what we've seen in other cases, I don't think he's going to win the appeal. But who knows? It is what it is. Um, I'm not, Again, I don't really support the death penalty, but at the same time, I mean, people who get out drills and shit, do what you want. This rest of society. I'm not going to fight you on this one. An interesting thing happened after Whitaker's arrest. No other murders have occurred on East 93rd Street. So you're probably thinking, as a lot of us were, could he be the serial killer? Yep. Spoilers, no. He can't. And the reason why is because Whitaker went to prison on March 21st, 2013. So he was incarcerated when Jasmine Trotter and Ashley Lazieski were murdered. So he could not possibly have been their killer. So if one killer is responsible for the first four murders, it can't possibly be Whitaker. Because we know he couldn't have killed them because he literally went into jail on March 21st. And then right after this is when Jasmine and also Ashley were both killed during that time. Christine Malone wasn't found until after he went to jail, but since she disappeared on March 18th, he technically would have had time to kill her since he didn't go to jail until the 21st. So he can't be ruled out in her murder, but at this time, the police have said they don't think that he's the serial killer because the only crime that he really seems to match, if we're being honest, is the first one, which is Jamila Hassan. Maybe he did that one, we don't know, but that's the only one that he really seems to like have like a similar you know overlapping with overlap with yeah now at this time there are still five unsolved murders from around east 93rd street and they include an order of occurrence jamila hassan jasmine trotter christine malone jessica coleman and ashley lazieski now remember jessica coleman's case is most likely unrelated from the other four for sure and it's possible that the other four are also unrelated we can't be sure police are not even sure so we don't know all five of these cases, though, are still open and police are still taking tips and Crime Stoppers is still taking tips. And in some cases, you can actually get reward money if your tip leads to a, an arrest and an indictment in this case. So there's an incentive if you live in that Cleveland area and you have information. If you do have information about the deaths of Jamila Hassan, Jasmine Trotter, Christine Malone, Jessica Coleman, or Ashley Lazieski, you can call Crime Stoppers at 21625-CRIME. So, 21625-CRIME, that seems like an easy number. The family of these women haven't given up on them and still want justice. And hopefully, someone with information will come forward and give them these answers. As we talked about earlier, the, the first crime happened nine years ago. And this is still going on. And every year, they're having memorials, they're having walks. All these families are doing events together. They really want to find out what happened to their relatives. And it's really depressing that they haven't. Yeah. And in some cases, they have what seems like good evidence and yet can't actually get to the perpetrator. Yeah. It's just, it's sad. And I wanted to share this with our listeners. We don't do a lot of unsolved cases over here, but it's important to talk about them because maybe they will get solved. That's right. So hopefully they will. I was glad that Alianas did. I actually did watch her episode too. I didn't watch it this time because honestly, I ran out of time. This week has been crazy. And I was trying to do just, like, one case and accidentally ended up with six. <laughs> yeah. Like, I wanted to do Jasmine's and then I, I didn't realize it was connected to all these other ones. And so I was, like, reading more information about her. I remember watching Aliana's when it aired originally and being depressed. 
because it is so sad. They do have video footage. If you watch it, there's consistent, like, surveillance footage from her, like, being on the bus and, like, smiling and being a 14-year-old child and then getting off and having this fucking predator attack her, which is just ridiculous. Yes. And so you can be sad and watch that with all the rest of us. I still can't believe that Jasmine's DNA thing did not help solve her murder either. Just the idea... I guess that's one good thing that the cops did is they actually followed the whole evidence instead of just stopping when they had a match and said, oh, hey, a criminal, that matches. Oh, we're done. So I guess points to them for that. Yes, that's true. Good job on that one part. The rest of it, no. But this one part, okay. Good job on that one part. Anyway, if you would like to listen to more Bad Acts, you should definitely go to our Patreon. It's patreon.com backslash Pod. There's a lot of episodes over there. A lot, like, I think they're some of our best topics. So definitely recommend. I always try to do our most exciting cases for our patrons because I hate it when Patreons that I'm a member of do the boring cases for Patreon. <laughs> Just being real, like, we don't want to pay extra for boring stuff. So if you go over there, I feel like we have some interesting cases for you, and I think you'll like them. Uh, the memberships do start at a dollar, so that's great. You can also follow us on social media. Our handle is at BadAxePod. We are most active on Instagram. I have been neglecting social media a little bit lately because I've been really busy, but I promise I'm coming back. Also, TikTok. We do have a TikTok. We have several videos up now. I have been neglecting the TikTok, but I promise we are coming back at you with more. I almost did the Astro World Festival debacle because we have, it's not really exactly true crime, but we are in Houston where we have recently suffered some great losses. At first, I was just sad about the World Series, and then this whole, like, horrible festival of death happened. And it has just been so sad and very alarming and really not great for Houston as a whole. Just some of the stuff that happened there with these people getting murdered and these children, especially there's been a couple of teenagers died. And there was a one guy who wasn't identified for a while, who's in his 20s, but they put his, like, picture out of his body, well, his face, specifically after he was deceased, which I accidentally looked at. And then there were, there's, like, a 10-year-old who some people say are, is nine, there's a debate, who's on life support right now after being crushed in the concert. And it's just so sad that this happened at a festival and... Anyway, I thought about doing some videos about that. But then I thought, it's not really crime. It kind of is a crime, but isn't. Yeah, it's, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. It's a, it's a tragedy. So I guess send positive vibes to Houston. Positive thoughts or whatever your religious practice is. Because we're emerged a mess over here. <laughs> Just a complete mess. If you would like to send us an email with your opinions or your suggestions or your feedback or your happy notes or your sad notes or your comments about Aaron, possibly, <laughs> our Gmail is badaxpod at gmail.com. Aaron does have a hater now. Um, he does have a, he, a hater. I feel like he is dulling your shine over here, Aaron. Apparently, there's a guy who hates Aaron on the podcast. Yeah, he doesn't listen anymore, though. And so he's not going to hear you. He's not going to hear this. You can, If you don't like how Aaron doesn't say as much stuff, you can just send that in the email. You don't have to put that in a review. <laughs> Although at least he left a, at least he wrote why he was mad. So there was one person that didn't uh, write why they were mad, and I'll never know, and I can't fix it. So I don't know what to tell you. But, yeah, so we did not fix it this time. I feel like Aaron was even quieter this time, so... If everyone who's listening, I'm sorry if you don't like how quiet Aaron is. He's just quiet in real life. I made him do this podcast. 
he's doing this to permit with me as a favor. So, so I'd please don't hate on Aaron in the in the reviews because he's not a performer. He's just like a nice person who is willing to discuss true crime. So thank you, Aaron. You're welcome. I love you very much. You're wonderful. <laughs> this podcast is wonderful. Okay, that wasn't. A compl- I wasn't asking for compliments. Oh, sorry. But I appreciate you. Okay. I'm. I was giving you compliments. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> I, I don't pay him for this. <laughs> for this, everyone. Anyway, so if if in in the future, if you personally were like, man, I really wish that Aaron would talk more. That's an email <laughs> you can send. <laughs> you don't need to put it on the reviews. He reads those. <laughs> And he's he's you know he's not used to this. He's not he's not like me. He's not used to being. Although I I get sad too. I'm so <laughs> maybe send us an email if you're mad. Anyway, so that's the email. Badaxpod at gmail dot com. It's there for you. Be like the Denver Post and email me. Denver Post loves to send me emails. They are like my number one person. I'm sorry, we're off topic. But you don't even, you don't understand how many emails I get from them. And also, I I had to sign up for this email to get more articles for you all to to look at the crimes. <laughs> and now they were like, oh, you seem to really like us. Let's keep up with what's happening in Denver. And I'm like, I don't live in Denver. Although, I wouldn't mind living in Denver because it seems really cool. <laughs> it does. It's on my list of cool places I might move one day. All right. Now, if you would like to look at our website, Aaron's going to tell you about it. It's badxpod.com. It's a great website. It's got a cool tree. Very spooky. Mm -hmm. Please check it out. I feel like he didn't get to your featured spot as the website person. (laughs) Clearly not, no. Because then he would be like, oh, there, that's what Aaron brings to the table, (laughs) is this stellar description of the website. I was being serious. I feel like that came off as sarcastic, but I was actually being serious. I think you do a good job. Well, thank you. All right, people. I will see you next week or very soon if you're a patron. Bye-bye. Bye.